Welcome to the podcast of Lancaster Brethren in Christ Church, located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. LBIC is a community being transformed by the love of Jesus, sharing this love with all people. We want this podcast to be an extension of our community and a connection with familiar voices. Together, we want to think about how to follow Jesus in our particular moment. So enjoy the podcast. We're grateful to have you join us as a part of the LBIC family. Television up here in case we go till 3.30 today. <laughs> at which point I won't look at you anymore and maybe just look down. All right, well, it's good to have everybody. Good to see everybody here uh, this morning. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That's where we'll be in a little bit. If you don't have Bibles, they're in the pew backs in front of you, or the scriptures will eventually be on the screen. Uh, Brian Kara, love, uh, one of the things I love about um, just the way Brian and Kara lead us in, in worship are the lyrics that they choose uh, for us to sing, because I think lyrics provide a space um, for us to find ourselves, and uh, the space that they create is, is very gracious. And so this morning, I kind of want to continue to riff off of what we've sung about already for the uh, room being in the kingdom to just talk about the shape uh, that our life of faith can take. Um, sometimes I think we have this idea of what a life of faith should look like, um, and, and it might be very linear, or you might think, well, mine doesn't look like that, and so I feel abnormal, but I think God is very gracious with us, and, and the shape that our, our faith takes uh, is, is one that is generous and one that is gracious and one where God travels with us with regularity um, in, in the places that he leads us and then in the places that we lead him. Uh, maybe not the places where he desires for us to go, but God continues to follow us even into the places where uh, we, we stray away from time to time or maybe with some frequency. And so this morning I want to talk uh, uh, or frame our, our time together just in the shape of uh, the shape that our, our lives of faith can take. And I want to begin uh, by reading a few, uh, a few lines from T.S. Eliot's, Eliot's poem, uh, Little Gidding. Um, it's, the, the lines that I'm about to read this morning have stuck in my mind uh, ever since I heard them. And so the poem's actually quite long, but I'm just going to read seven lines here. And it's actually printed in your bulletin if you want to follow along. Here's what he writes. He says, What we call the beginning is often the end. And to make an end is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from. Later on, he writes, We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place as if for the very first time. So his last three lines that have stuck with me for numbers of years, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Uh, this resonates with me, and it continues to resonate with me because I feel like it's descriptive of our life with God and the, the path that we take and set out uh, to follow Jesus. Most of us probably start out with some sense of simplicity, believing that Jesus is God's revelation of God's self to us, of God's love for the world, that he sends Jesus to us to reveal God's love for the world in his life, his love for us in his death, and his desire to bring us into the kingdom of God. It probably all starts with something 
very simple like that, a very simple message. The message of the gospel is beautiful enough for a young child to grasp and yet deep enough for philosophers to ponder and theologians to ponder for their entire lives and still not mind the depths of all of it. We start simple, uh, but then it feels like, at least for me, and this might, might be self-descriptive, and maybe it's descriptive and helpful for you, but um, it, it feels to me that uh, along the way it gets complicated. We complicated. Uh, and, and this, in some mysterious way, too, us complicating things is also part of how our faith is shaped. Others set expectations for us. We set expectations for ourselves. God sets expectations. We try We make efforts, we read the Bible, we read theologians, we listen to podcasts, we attempt to stay awake during riveting sermons. Uh, We have conversations with people, we wrestle with real life stuff, how this gospel, how God meets us on the ground of our lives. We search for answers to doubts and questions. And in the midst of that all, God is doing God's thing, mostly probably quietly and patiently. And then every once in a while, you have a moment of great clarity. Sometimes we find answers to the questions we ask much of the time. However, we find that we are shaped along the way with the things that we ask, with the things that we wrestle with. And on the way, in the midst of this wrestling, is where we find wisdom. Or maybe better said, that's when wisdom finds us. I'd like to suggest this morning that this is a a way or a shape of our experience of life with God. There will be many times, I think, at least has been my experience, and I think in the experience of others too that I know, that after beginning with the simplicity of God's love, things get complicated. And then at the end of that complication we return to where we began, to the simplicity of God's love. This traveling between beginnings and ends, as Eliot says, forms us. But it always ends and begins and begins and ends with God. And when we return to our, our, when when we come to an ending and we have a new uh, beginning, we start again Maybe with the same truth, the simplicity of God's love for us, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, whatever that simple thing is we begin with again, it might be the same thing, but what is different is us. We have been transformed and changed by the journey of asking questions and wrestling with the things of our faith and trying to figure out what it means to faithfully follow Jesus. So we might come back again to the same thing, But the journey has made us different people. God is the same. We have become different as we become more like Christ. The lectionary has us still this morning in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Um, Last week we talked about these four different factions in the church. uh, Different groups with different agendas who had different figureheads uh, who they claimed as leaders. And how they got lost in the messages of these divisions and losing, uh, and how they lost the beauty of Jesus. And so this morning we pick up uh, where we left off in verse 18. And so we'll read this morning 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. Again, this is Paul's letter, and this is what he says to the Corinthian church. 
For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligent of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosophers of this age? Is not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews, they demand a sign. Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think about what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. Therefore, as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Wisdom and foolishness. What what is wisdom? Uh, In the verses that we read here this morning, there are two approaches that Paul's addressing to wisdom. There's the Jewish approach to wisdom. There's the Greek approach approach to wisdom. If you remember from last week, there's four different factions that Paul is writing to. The groups of Paul and Apollos and Peter and even Jesus. And so in the Jewish tradition of wisdom, we might think that Paul and Peter represent that Jewish idea of wisdom. They're steeped in Judaism. Apollos, though, uh, comes from this uh, place uh, called Alexandria. So very sophisticated guy, eloquent speaker, And so he would probably uh, uh, more or less refer to the Greek approach to wisdom as even the person or the group that associates themselves with the person of Jesus. Uh, Because the way they think of Jesus is just kind of a super spiritual reality. It's not necessarily the, the Jesus that we're reading about that Paul's encouraging them to, but it's more of a Jesus as an idealism. And so you have these two different groups, Jewish and Greek. Both of them have their approaches to wisdom, which we'll explore in a minute. But before exploring each of these groups, Paul's main point comes in verse 30 when he says that Christ has become for us the wisdom of God. So before we look at these two groups, this is the main thing that Paul wants to get across to us, that it is Christ who is the wisdom of God. And specifically, it's not just There is something specific about the person of Jesus that is wisdom for us. And that very specific thing is the cross of Jesus. The cross of Christ is that which confronts the wisdom of both Jews and Greeks. It's the wisdom of the cross of Christ. Verse 23 and 24. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified... Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who God has called Jews and Gentiles or Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
In the words of uh, T.S. Eliot in that poem that we read in the beginning, Christ and the cross of Christ will be an, an ending point and a beginning point for us probably many times throughout our journey as we follow Jesus. And it's because the cross defines the shape of life that we ourselves are to take. The cross will be the standing critique, the standing judgment, the prophetic word to us over and over in our lives of faith. Uh, several years ago, Mary-Kate Morse, who many of you know, uh, is a mentor of mine. Um, she had uh, this prayer practice that we participated in, and the idea was to visualize ourselves laying down on the cross. And the idea what, uh, that she challenged us with is what, as you lay down, will not fit on the cross? So what are those elements of your lives that, won't, that don't take a cross-shaped form? Even what are your ideas of God that don't take a cross-shaped form? How does the cross and, and, and the shape of the cross help you uh, understand um, what it looks like to follow Jesus, both where you are with Christ on the cross, but then where you've also gotten it wrong, where there's been some excess and some things that the cross is critiquing in your life, things that you need to abandon because the cross is abandonment. And abandonment is a part of our life of faith where we die to ourselves, where we die to our old self, and God brings to us, uh, brings new life into us. I think about that question often and that imagery often. I actually think it's kind of, it's not funny, but I think about it as a cookie cutter shape sort of cross. And so if I'm a piece of dough and the cross is, has this cookie cutter shape, how does this cross that's impressed down on my life cut away all this superfluous stuff that I have accumulated over time, that I have accumulated over since my last end and beginning and end again. How does the cross bring wisdom and insight and new shape to my life? The wisdom of God is opposite of what Paul's going to describe here as the wisdom of the Jews, which is a stumbling block, and the foolishness of the Gentiles. So let's look at each one of these, Jewish wisdom and Greek wisdom. I keep saying Gentiles, but they say Greek. So let's start with Jewish wisdom. Verse 22 says that Jews demand signs. Now, Jewish faith was a faith of practice. There were very tangible rhythms that they were used to as a part of their life and what it meant to be faithful to God. There was synagogue and there was Sabbath, there were feasts, and these structures are good things. Sometimes when we read the New Testament and we read uh, Jesus' critique of the Pharisees, we get this impression that the whole of Judaism is legalistic or fundamentalist in a sense, but it's not. It has a structure. And that structure is meant to point to God, to keep people uh, directing their lives to God, to give them a structure uh, to focus on God. So it, it's not necessarily, first and foremost, fundamentalist or, or legalistic. A few weeks ago, uh, some of you know I had a chance to go, I went on um, a three-day silent retreat to a Benedictine Monastery in New Jersey. And so I had a chance then to participate in a rhythm of life, a very structured rhythm of life for a couple days. And it was incredibly rich and beautiful and actually very freeing. And so 6.30 every morning I would join them for matins and it was just the, 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 
13 monks that were there in this huge, three times the size of this sanctuary. And, and they would pray their, pray their prayers and sing their prayers and sing the psalms. And I would stand there and try to follow along and listen. Um, that was 6.30 in the morning. 7 o'clock was breakfast. Noon was lunch. 5.30 was vespers. Uh, 6 o'clock was dinner. Um, I admit I was not spiritual enough to get up at 2.30 in the morning for their prayers. Um, I draw lines, too. I just can't, can't come to do that. Uh, I, I was only there three days, but participating in this rhythm of their communal, community life did something to me. It gave me a sense of structure. It, it called me again and again with the ringing, and they, they still had this. It was the ringing of the bells that um, timed and structured their day. The ringing of, of the bells called my attention again and again. It was like I was part of this rhythm of life that was focused on God. Now, in, in, in non-structured religions, uh, Protestantism has very uh, a, a lot less structure to it. And with that, there's great freedom. There's wonderful freedom that we can experience, but there's also something that we lose when we lose a more structured life. So as we talk about the structure in Jewish religion with synagogue and Sabbath and rituals, it's not bad, it's not legalistic. But what Paul is critiquing here is form without substance. Form without substance. Jesus would call this, and he said this to the Pharisees, that they were no better than whitewashed tombs. So they appear wonderful on the outside, but inside they're quite empty. There's not anything going on in there. And so this isn't just for Jews, but all religion and all faith, Christianity is ours. We have form and we have structure. You are here this morning. You stood when you were supposed to. You sat when you were supposed to. You're going to pray and we'll receive communion as you're uh, welcome to. And so we have form and we have function too. And one of the things that we want to be aware of in Paul's critique of Jewish kinds of wisdom that has form and function down to a pat, to a T, is, is that we're not just going through the motions, but there is substance that fills the form. And so the cross, then, is a critique of all form. Because outwardly, it's, it, it's much easier to look good, right? In fact, for some people, that's what religion is, is a way to keep up appearances, but for the Jewish wisdom, for Jewish wisdom, the cross is a stumbling block because the cross is ugly. There is nothing about appearance there that is attractive. There's nothing about it that says this is all together, this is the way it's supposed to be. The cross is hideous and, 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 and we, uh, in our day and age, romanticize it to, to symbols and things that we wear around our necks and all those kinds of things. But in, in the time of Paul's writing, it is the lowliest, most gruesome form of death. And for the Jews, it's completely offensive. In their own law in Deuteronomy, it says that anyone who hung on a tree was cursed. And so the wisdom of the cross critiques all of our outward appearances. 
The point of our faith is not simply to have form or to go through the forms, but for those forms to lead us to the deep wisdom of the cross of Jesus, because the power of God is in and contained in the wisdom of the cross. Now, all of us, whether you want to admit it or not, we're all legalists or fundamentalists in some way or another. Um, it's, it's easy to say those fundamentalists over there, those legalists over there. Um, but there's a piece of our hearts too, I think, at least there's a piece of mine, that is the same. That seeks to be controlling through what I can do and what's within my realm and the, the appearances that I seek to maintain. There's a fundamentalist and legalistic part of me that wants to earn my way to God and prove myself worthy of God or think that I'm doing a good job in order to make God happy with me. There's part of me that judges the outward appearances of other people. There is a fundamentalist and a legalist part of me, and maybe there's one of you too. In all our attempts to have the right form, the church, you know, and what we do, the prayers, the scripture, the discipline, the good deeds, the cross asks the greater question, is the outward appearances all good while the inner life is empty? For the Jews who focus on the outward appearance, the cross demands the death of our efforts and the death of ourselves to find our life in Christ that is given to us on the cross. Now let's look at the wisdom of the Greeks, which is a bit different. The wisdom of the Greeks is based on knowledge. Uh, as we mentioned last week, there's the group that's called the sophists around that time where we get the idea of sophistication or those words are, are um, related to one another. They prized knowledge. Um, as we mentioned before, they were impacted by Gnostic thought. They thought the spiritual was wonderful, the physical uh, was corrupt. And so there was a disconnect then between God who was spiritual and humanity, which obviously are in the flesh. And so the idea of a crucified God is absolute foolishness to them because God would never take on flesh, number one, and God would never become crucified, allow himself to become crucified, number two, because there is absolutely no eloquence in a crucified God. There is no uh, room for thought for these Greeks that God himself would suffer at all in the first place. And so this is offensive. It's foolishness to them. A suffering God is foolishness. On one hand, because flesh was evil and corrupt and God wouldn't stoop down to that level. And then on the other hand, God certainly, if God was God, would not choose to suffer in the way of the cross. And so to them, God was found through eloquence and wisdom of the kind that came from intellectual assent. Uh, for those of you who are learners out there, maybe the, the Jewish wisdom comes from the doing, the, the Greek wisdom comes from the learners and the ideas and thinking about all these things. It was found through eloquent speech. And so I don't know if you've ever, <laughs> hopefully this doesn't classify me, but um, if you've ever heard somebody speak super eloquently and you're like, wow, that sounded amazing. What did they say? <laughs> Again, I hope that's not me. For them, God was ideas. 
And wisdom was seen through the lens of how well you could speak about God. So even you could sound eloquent and have no substance. It was the continued proliferation of knowledge and insight and ideas and intellect. This was Greek wisdom. Uh, We're not very much unlike the Greeks in our time. We live in a time where there is a proliferation of knowledge. Steve, if you want to put up this slide, I came across this. It's called uh, a day in data. Um, So I I don't even understand half of this. I was going to call Jonathan Bowman and ask him exactly what an exabyte is. Um, But here's some fun little facts from, from this slide. Every day, 500 million tweets are posted. 294 billion emails are sent. 3.9 billion, half the world's population, will use email. 3.9 billion searches are made on Google. And by 2025, here's the parts I don't understand, 463 exabytes, which is 463 followed by 18 zeros behind it, will be created every day. We live in a time where there's more information at our fingertips than any time in human history. And with Paul, we might be able to ask, are we any wiser because of it? Is it producing wisdom? My experience of faith when it comes to faith and knowledge and this kind of combination, I've experienced both of the, the, the Jewish kind of um, approach to wisdom and the trying and the doing and the forms. I, I have certainly uh, um, experienced that and I've experienced the Greek form of wisdom too. I begin with this piece of knowledge about God. And then because I'm curious, and, and here's the thing, the forms aren't bad in and of themselves. Intellect and, and, and seeking to, to know and a quest for knowledge isn't bad in and of itself. And so for me, I begin with a piece of knowledge and then I begin to ask questions. If God is like this, then what? And so I read and I gain a little insight and I listen to others. I gain more insight, I sit with it, I write about it, I digest it, I ask more questions, I learn more and more and more. And as I'm doing these things, at least in my experience, I'm shaped and I continue to explore. But there comes a time in in my experience with these things as I'm exploring who God is, there comes a time when I come to the end of my exploring. And as, as Eliot says, and I arrive where I started and know the place for the first time. All the increase in knowledge and all the questions and everything else brings me back time and time again to the wisdom of God in Christ. To the cross that calls me to lay myself down upon it again. The cross helps me distinguish what is of God and what's of my own pride in my own vanity. At the end of the day, all my exploring and all of my posturing comes back to Jesus, who is always the first and the last word. I'm called again and again to surrender to him. Like the Greeks, we can explore all the knowledge in the world. There's certainly more than enough to explore. And like I said, learning's a good thing. But whatever enlightenment we think we might gain, 
must be placed upon the cross to see if it takes the form of Jesus or not. To see if it takes the shape of a cruciform life. Uh, Kim Paffenroth, in his book, In Praise of Wisdom, points out, and, and, and Brian brought this out earlier in the scriptures that Jane read from the Sermon on the Mount, he points out that those praised for wisdom in the New Testament were often those who were ignored and those who were not enlightened. And so this is where all these blesseds come from. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Like this is anti-wisdom when it comes to the world, but it is wisdom in the kingdom of God. Paul says kind of the same thing here in verses 26 and 27. When he says, brothers and sisters, think of it what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of you were loaded and rich and of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Friends, we're not so enlightened, nor do we have our form down to the point um, where Paul's words and his warnings don't apply to us and cause us to look in the mirror and ask ourselves our own questions. How the cross might be a, a stumbling block for our practices of piety. Or how the cross continues to be foolishness to our enlightened minds and our secular orthodoxy. Some boast in all they're doing for God. Some boast in all of their deep thoughts about God. Paul asks us to boast in that which we would rather deny, the call of Christ to the crucifixion of our own lives, death to self, and life in Christ. The cross is, is a beginning and an end for us. It is simple for us, uh, simple enough for us to understand its message, and it's enough, it has enough depth for us to explore it for our entire lives. And beginnings and ends also describe what we do as we gather here week after week, not just in this building, but around this table. We come again to the cross of Jesus which is simple enough for the simplest of us to understand and profound enough and mysterious enough for those who are, are on a quest for the deeper things. We come again to the cross of Christ and to this table. As we uh, prepare to receive this morning, I just want to invite us into a, a, a moment of contemplative silence and so if you want to close your eyes you may do that but just some questions to allow um, the spirit to work in your own heart and life the spirit of Christ to work in your own heart and life maybe you can picture yourself placing your life upon the cross what fits what fades away?
Where is Jesus inviting you to lay down your version of wisdom upon the cross? Not necessarily to take up a piece of knowledge or a new nugget of wisdom, but to take on a certain kind of life, the kind of life that we see embodied in the person of Jesus, God in the flesh. 